Which actor portrayed Jay Gatsby, Howard Hughes, and Romeo? Welcome to Trivial Context, the only podcast that gives you context for trivia. I'm Sean Riley with my life partner and trivia partner. Brooke Fouts Riley. Marlon Brando. I have no idea. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, you're so good, Brooke. In The Great Gatsby, The Aviator, and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I should have thought about it. I didn't, yeah, Gatsby. It's right, it says it right there. Okay. <laughs> Very good job, Brooke. It was Romeo, but... That did it for you? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. In school. In English class. Same. Yeah. We each chose today's topic based on one of the six trivia categories picked randomly last week. This week, it was... Entertainment. entertainment for the second time in a row rotation yeah rotation will be really fun because we're doing what the other is interested in so it should make for good conversation yeah so which for us is hard so this will be good <laughs> we still picked what we the other person still doesn't know what we picked yes that is but correct. it's catered to the other person's interests and I'm very excited. You answered the question correctly first, or just correctly, so <laughs> why don't you go first? Yeah. All right, you ready? What do the films Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio, correct, Gladiator, Spider-Man 2, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and Terminator 2, Revenge Day, have in common? Judgment Day. Or, sorry, yeah, Judgment Day. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well... Titanic and Ju- Terminator 2 Judgment Day, both directed by James Cameron. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Button has... Brad Pitt? Brad Pitt! <laughs> I'm so- I want to say Bill Murray so bad, and I knew that wasn't correct. <laughs> I do not know. I concede. They all won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Oh, okay. Cool. So this is all going to be about the history of visual effects. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. I like Um, visual effects. As mentioned in previous episodes, pretty much all my topics turn into a history lesson. Yeah, I mean, everything is history. Yeah. If it has already happened, it's history. Mm -hmm. And also talked about in other episodes, there's so much about this topic that, like, you just kind of have to... to the wayside. You kind of have to pick and choose. So I tried to make this a combination of, like, what (laughs) they are and where they came from and how they're used. Perfect. Claymation. Mm. All right. So what are visual effects? According to the Masterclass website, special effects, also known as SFX, are visual tricks or techniques used by filmmakers in motion pictures and other visual mediums to create an illusion that may be impractical or even impossible in a live-action shot. Like a dinosaur? Mm Mm-hmm. Special effects include mechanical effects, such as pyrotechnics, miniatures, and prosthetic makeup, and optical effects, such as motion captures, photography, matte paintings, and stop-motion animation. These two types are not to be mistaken for visual effects, which refers to digital post-production effects. CGI. CGI. Computer-generated imaging, or Mm -hmm. images. Which is its own separate entity, which is a bit controversial because they're all, like, grouped together now. Like, all the films I mentioned in the question won because of CGI. Interesting. So. So even though other visual effects are under that same blanket, Mm -hmm. they're often ignored? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it now. less common. What isn't CGI? 
Yeah, I mean, Star Wars, Star Wars prequels were so CGI that people like were against it. So the new Star Wars movies are a good mix. Mm-hmm. I remember Episode Seven was coming out, and everyone was talking about how they were on location. They had like <laughs> big suits that people would put on to be big monsters, and like it was it was a little over the top. How it was not CGI, even though a lot of it still was very CGI. Yeah. And I should have mentioned this earlier. The reason I picked this topic is because we recently, Sean showed me Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And about every five minutes he would go, that's a practical. That's practical. That's practical. <laughs> or not. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes uh, I'm not like, look how good that looks, even though it's not real. Yeah. So, and there's been a couple other times where he's like, oh, XYZ explains the special effects. So I figured you would like this. Yeah. And to peek behind the little curtain, we just paused Jurassic Park <laughs> Yeah. moments ago and talk about CGI. That movie has some. I know. And some practical effects. <laughs> well, it's funny. While we were watching, there's a reason I was like, yeah, let's watch Jurassic Park. Oh, I knew. gotcha. <laughs> and then at one point you're like, I don't really care how CGI. And I was like, oh, he's going to say he doesn't care about CGI. And I'm literally about to talk at him <laughs> yeah. about it for 30 minutes. Agnosium. But he said something else, so it worked out. <laughs> so, in the beginning, special effects in film were simple, like, sub-splice and stop-trick situations with map paintings. Mm-hmm. The first special effect was in 1857, when Oscar Rejlander took 32 negatives and put them into a single image. Most people recognize the beginning of modern film to be the creation of the Lumiere brothers in 1895. That same year, a man named Alfred Clark created the first special effect in a moving picture, like a film, with the execution of Mary Stuart in Mary, Queen of Scots. And that felt like a big jump. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, we can make it look like this woman's head got cut off? Let's do it. Yeah. But yeah, I just think it's interesting. Like, pretty much assume, the same year that, that a movie was really invented, special effects are already coming into play. Yeah, that's really cool. And again, it, it's something simple where there's a woman laying there. They stop the camera. She runs out. Everyone else in the frame freezes. They replace it with a dummy and then cut the dummy's head off. So nothing crazy. Yeah. Does not look good. It's pretty violent, I have to say. To today's standards. Yes. <laughs> However, even though Alfred Clark created the first special effect, another man would claim the title of father of special effects. His name is Georges Miles. I do not know how to pronounce his name. I watched a video on it. That was a while ago, and I have forgotten. I apologize. I think you nailed it. To all my French speakers. He was another Frenchman who was a big fan of the brothers work he was able to like really grow up or be around that scene yeah because he didn't grow up he he was a man but he was where film was invented really influenced uh he was also a magician yeah stagehand and what most people special effects (laughs) than magic his biggest and most popular film was made in 1902 called le voyage dans la lune or The Voyage to the Moon. And in this film, he combined a ton of different effects, like live action, animation, miniatures, and matte painting work. 
And it's, again, I saw like little clips of it and doing research and it looks like it was made in 1902. Yep. <laughs> but really cool. I, it's amazing the creativity with like how limited technology and stuff was back then. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that really is. So. I remember watching a James Bond movie where he, where Roger Moore goes to Egypt and something about how he couldn't film on that day or something. They didn't want to pay him or maybe it was reshoots. So yeah, they painted him kind of hidden up against a wall and then had people like run by this painting. <laughs> and it doesn't look great, but there it is. The movie continues. That's funny. So I'm gonna start sprinkling in some innovation in the field. Ooh. So there's matte painting work, which is essentially like a big picture that has been in the back for like scenery. Yeah. However, about a decade later Something called the Map Shot was created by a man named Norman Don, and this, I believe, came from Wikipedia. <laughs> he combined the technique with glass shot, so instead of using cardboard to block certain areas of the film exposure, Don simply painted certain areas black to prevent any light from exposing the film. From partially exposed film, a single frame is then projected onto the easel, where the mat is then drawn. By creating the map from an image directly from the film, it became incredibly easy to paint an image with proper respect to scale and perspective, the main flaw of the glass shot, and this technique became textbook due to the natural images it created. So that's cool. Okay. Yeah. For explanations of things, I am just copy-pasting from things so I don't lose... Because, like, I kind of get that, but I also kind of don't. I don't want to... <laughs> yeah not explain something correctly okay well i think it made sense and good job great whoever wrote that <laughs> invented by a man named max flesher in 1915 is rotoscoping and he was the first to or he used it first in a series called out of the inkwell and basically it's where you like trace over things to make them move okay or like insert them into the film. He patented this technique, but it expired in 1934, and the second it expired, everyone started using it. And that's why Disney is changing Disney. copyright laws forever. There's also something called the Schuften process, named after Eugene Schuften, and this is simply using mirrors to film actors and insert them into miniature. This way, it looks like the miniature is actually life-size. While the process is named after him, he's not the one who invented it. He just hmm. used it well, and they were like, yep, this is yours. I hope to steal something someday and have it be named after me. <laughs> well, I don't think you can. Like a baby. <laughs> no, I'll not steal a baby. Good job. Proud of you. All right, so there's some examples of how special effects are adapting in the first... This is still... Yeah, like early 1900s. Yeah, so only movies have only been around for a couple decades, or a few decades. Probably the biggest movie, how do I put this? The biggest, earliest special effects movie Yes. is Willis O'Brien's King Kong in 1933. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yep. So have they, you seen that movie? I've seen clips now. You've seen clips? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've seen the whole movie. Boy, is it insufferable. It's pretty good, though. <laughs> Visually effects, or the visual effects are, you know, affecting mm -hmm. my eyes. So, 
again, they combined a lot of different techniques. For example, Kong is actually only 18 inches. Um, when he holds a girl, it's literally a, the tiniest doll. Um, they use matte paintings, projection, projections of pre-recorded scenes to like insert the actress mm-hmm. into sets. Mechanical props, like a giant gorilla hand to like reach in the apartment yeah. and pull her out. <laughs> And this was all done by Linwood Dunn. So, a great man in the field. Yeah, he done it. Mm-hmm. The industry also changed because of technology developments in war. <laughs> in World War II, the optical printer was invented. And this is again from Masterclass. The printer linked a movie camera to one or more projectors, which allowed filmmakers to reshoot segments of the film. The optical printer produced matte shots, fade-outs, and dissolves, and fast and slow motion. It remained an industry standard well into the 1970s. Wow. And essentially, you take a light source, and a projector would play a scene, and then over that, there would be a matte shot that would, like, black out a shape. Then they would take the object that they wanted to, like, insert in the scene, line it perfectly with what they did with the blank shape, film that sequence, and then once computers were invented... The computer would combine them together, and then you have a scene. The example they used was Star Wars movies. I was about like to say, it's like, sequences. it's like the black outline and stuff of, like, spaceships. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. There's also just, like, fun little things, like a steady cam, which is essentially a camera on springs that helps shoot, like, long shots cool. without making it really bumpy. The inventor of this type of camera named Garrett Brown is the one who filmed a lot of of these scenes in Return of the Jedi. Which you have not seen. I have not seen it. There's also, as you mentioned before, I believe, stop frame animation where it's basically just a lot of pictures put together and you slightly move an object to make it look like it's moving. It sounds awful. I mean, it sounds I like I do not have the patience. For sounds that. like those flip books that you just like draw a little dot and then you move it around however you want. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time, and yeah, just do that for a movie. Yeah, I remember projects in school would be like, you could write a ten-page paper, or do a two-minute stop-motion video, and I would never choose that because I felt like the paper was faster. Yeah, that's an over-exaggeration, but no, I agree. I remember. I would literally never choose a stop-motion video for any project. And I'll tell you what, a lot of those people that did choose the stop-motion videos had a lot of little Legos just standing and, you know, in quotations, talking to one another. Yeah, that's true. And we can't talk about special effects without specifically mentioning George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. The 70s brought the world their beloved Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind... A little bit less beloved, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. During this time, film was really popular, budgets were huge, and, like, technology was advancing so quickly, and audiences were keen for science fiction and fantasy, which is perfect for special effects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is also where we see a lot of makeup um, or prosthetics used um some of that is literally just applying makeup really well some of it shout out to season four stranger things Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some of it is created with um they'll like mold an actor's face or like create an animal and then connect 
they're called control cables, but they're essentially cables, and then you press on, press and pull these cables. So they could... And it moves, like, what would be muscles in the face. That's cool. So it made, like, animals more realistic. Yeah. Again, today's standards does not look good. Oh. But, you know, at the time, a really cool advancement. All right, and this brings us to the 1980s, where we see movies like Starfighter, Jurassic Park, which is technically the 90s, and Terminator 2. Also the 90s. Okay, so maybe this is just the 90s. That's Anyways, good. 80s and I think the 80s is when CGI really gets introduced and then we yeah. really see it in the 90s with these movies. Yeah. Um and CGI is computer generated imaging or images. Yeah. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's obviously what's most popular today. And that kind of also causes some controversy. Yeah. Because I mean, part of Hollywood is dying or movies in general is dying. Like set creators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marvel shows and movies right now. It's it's easier to film everything on a green screen and then have people come in and create like their office or whatever they're standing in than it is to just rent out or build a little office. Yeah. To film on. So yeah, a lot of people are losing their jobs. But if you're in the CGI world. Yeah, CGI business, then you are too busy. You have unrealistic deadlines and you're overworked and t- and sad and tired. Yeah. So maybe we should bring back some of the OG effects. I'm very quickly going to mention, I've mentioned some names, but I feel like there's some other pioneers in the industry that deserve a shout out. Wallace and Gromit. The creators I'm talking about. Oh, okay. (laughs) So there's Marcel Delgado, who was right up there with George, George, one of the first effect artists. There was Ray Harryhausen. Are you familiar with that name? No, I'm not. He worked on a film called, like, Jason and the Argonauts. 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 Okay. Yep. I've seen clips. <laughs> There's also Douglas Trumbell, Dennis Morin, Murin, who was the first person to get a Hollywood star of fame for his visual effects. He also worked on Jurassic Park. John Gatia, Matrix. Yep. I was going to say the Matrix should be in there. Joe Lettereye, John Knoll, who worked on Rogue One, John Nelson, Terminator 2, Paul Franklin, who worked on like Inception and Marvel movies and Harry Potter and a ton, and the 2022 Oscar winner for this category, so the most recent to us right now, is Paul Lambert for Dune. Oh, very cool. Yeah. All right, and then here I'm going to close with just some fun facts, kind of opening up the curtain behind some famous scenes. So special effects are kind of ancient. They were used at the Globe Theater in the 1600s. They used smoke and fog. <laughs> Good. But still, yeah, it shows like that, that people... Yeah, like that is an effect, yeah. Yeah. Um, the highest grossing stop motion film as of 2018 is Chicken Run. Grossing twenty or two hundred and twenty-five million dollars. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. When's the last stop motion movie that's come out? It's been. It's been a while. Yeah. Like Nightmare Before Christmas was that? That, oh, was, no. that was earlier. Huh? That was earlier. That's one of the most popular, and I think that's what really brought stop motion film like back. That, that, or, yeah. or or or. That's what made it really popular. So like Tim Burton. Yeah. I can't remember his first name. But his last name is Selleck. Tom Selleck. No. <laughs> okay, I don't know. He's 
one of them, Tim Burton either directed or produced Nightmare Before Christmas, and then he did the other. Mm, Mr. Selleck. And then, yeah, Mr. Selleck is the one who made, like, Coraline and... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest, not my vibe. Yeah, I I enjoy Nightmare Before Christmas. As a Halloween movie? movie? Yep, and then I'm good. Wait, did but we some des- people... Did we decide it was a Christmas movie or a Halloween movie We last decided time? it was a Halloween movie. Mm. Yes, because you're like... The deciding factor is how many times Christmas is said and how many times Halloween is said. And Halloween was said more. I, I thought I said that if you didn't count the opening song where they said Halloween, Halloween, this is Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. I don't remember that. Because I feel like but if you could take that out, here's the thing. it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> you said it was a Halloween movie when we watched it. And I'm sticking to that because that is the correct answer. <laughs> Anyways, I'm surprised that's not the most the highest grossing one. Because yeah. people are into it I, I would say it's much better than chicken run yeah though i haven't seen chicken run in about 15 years yeah i we have a vhs somewhere in my parents house same <laughs> yeah <laughs> to create the effect of the lightsaber blades in the original star wars film remember i talked about rotoscoping yes so you take each individual frame of film and then trace over every frame as one image it took months to finish but made awesome fights yeah so. I can imagine, because the first one, how often is the lightsaber pulled out? Like, maybe three times. It's not really all that present. And then, yeah, compare that to, like, episode six, where it's lightsaber all the time fighting. Yeah. Uh, that's digital. <laughs> oh, is it? There was a lot of cool stuff about Jaws, but you talked about it in a previous episode. So if you're interested about the special effects mm-hmm. on those, go listen to our previous episode. That was our first entertainment episode. So earlier I talked about, oh yeah, that's right, Ray Harryhausen of Jason and the Argonauts. Yep. And there's a scene where the hero has a sword fight with seven skeleton warriors. And the scene was done in stop motion and took four months to complete. That's awesome. There's a, a really good modern short film, like indie short film, about all of these like outdated special effects anima- animations. Uh-huh. And like they're living and stuff, and it's very cool. And the main character is one of those skeletons. Oh, that's cool. Or, or implied to be, you know, I don't, I don't know if they could use that name, if it's copyright or not. Right. But yeah, like, they have a, like, a creature from the Black Lagoon-esque bodysuit, and just, like, a little walking paper animation. I don't want to talk about this movie that I can't remember the name of. I'll look it up. But it's really good. I didn't mention this, but I just thought of it. Into the Spider-Verse, I feel like, also really changed it special did, effects. Because yeah. it's like a live-action comic book, which is hard to explain. Like, yeah. the style. But it's really cool. It's very cool. I, I That movie came out, and I think Sony... It became a huge success, like, immediately. And Sony was like, uh, we have to copyright this. And, the, and then they copyrighted that style of animation. Yeah. This is pretty common knowledge, but in case you didn't know, Lord of the Rings t- trilogy uses a of optical effects where you have all these different sized people on screen mm-hmm. but you would just put one closer to the camera to make them seem taller yeah <laughs> or like an object would be way bigger or way smaller than it actually yeah. was you know what series of films does a really bad job at that the hobbits oh <laughs> it is abysmal the uh, short film I was thinking of was called Rebooted, and you can find it on YouTube. It's 12 minutes long. Oh. 
We should watch it after this. Okay. In the movie Independence Day, the flame bursting through New York City was not computer graphics, but an actual fire built on a miniature set and then filmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. Did they really explode like a miniature White House? I don't know. Probably, because yeah, it looks really like, good. Yeah, I was going to say probably, like if they're building sets. I don't know, like if they're doing it for one part, I would imagine they do it for others. Yeah. Christopher Nolan, classic guy. Batman or um, The Dark Knight. In the movie Interstellar, did not want computers, or he wanted to use computers yeah, as didn't, little... Didn't he like put screen, like all of the windows are screens instead of like green screen, so the actors can actually see what they're reacting to? Sure. Oh, what were you going to say, though? All I have is that it was a three-story set that Matthew McConaughey was lowered into on wires, and all the ocean planet in that film was filmed on top of a melting glacier. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and you're talking the three-story set was the ship, was the spaceship? Yeah, I think just Matthew McConaughey like is really high. Yeah. He is dangling. That's awesome. And there is, like, no gravity. I mean, there is gravity, but, yeah. like... That's why he can do the things that he does, because he's dangling on a wire. <laughs> yeah. I should go back and watch that movie. I only watched it when it came out, and the ending, you know, has all its controversies. I haven't really seen it since, so I should go back. And then finally, in the movie The Godfather, there's a scene where a man gets annihilated by machine guns, and they put 149 squibs, which are like little tiny firecrackers, on... Of blood? On the, the stunt double. So that really happens. Fortunately, it only took them one shot to do that. <laughs> that is my little inside scoop on special effects. Very well done. What's your favorite special effect? Honestly, I'm really impressed with like makeup. Like that, yeah, that's fair. That requires a lot of talent and a lot of... Just t- like sitting in a chair for... Eight hours yeah. or whatever. And it's absolutely amazing, like, what they can mm-hmm. transform people into. I've already said it, but, like, I think Vecna from this most recent season, mm-hmm. really good makeup. And then, like, they enhance it with, like, movement in the neck and, like, the back with CGI. And I think yeah. it's really effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to do. I feel like the best stuff is CGI, but I don't want to pick that because it's controversial and kind of i mean jurassic park is pretty on the forefront of my mind right now (laughs) (laughs) actually like my pet peeve and it has to do with jurassic park is like when people say oh it looks so bad like how could people like that Mm -hmm. which you have said multiple times in this episode about other things no you said that no yeah you called king kong insufferable because the acting and the movie oh, and the gotcha. shots, uh, the special effects are, are great. Like, I have a lot of fun thinking, like, somebody had to, like, they were groundbreaking. Like, somebody had to come up with yeah, that. Yeah, I like, agree. That's you have to I, appreciate it for yeah. the time. Absolutely. So, like, I was talking to this, I don't know, you know, I was talking to this 14-year-old. And he's like, yeah, I can't watch Jurassic Park. It looks horrible. I'm like, no, you, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park is amazing. Does it look real? No, it didn't look real in the 90s. But it looks amazing. Yeah. And that's the point. That was the most real... You could see a dinosaur at the time. <laughs> yeah. I was just say, in the thing I saw, it was like when films first started, even seeing just like everyday activity, people would freak out. <laughs> yeah. It's so like there was a, a movie that just showed it like a train arriving in a train station and people yeah. getting on and off and people like fainted. I heard they like thought they were going to be hit by a train. Yeah. 
and it they're not nope <laughs> anyway it's just funny are you so excited for my report i'm so i'm excited to know what you picked for me yeah i am too did you like what i picked for you i did okay good. and i appreciate it i thought a long time about my question uh-huh. And I couldn't get like a, a satisfying enough question without spoiling parts of what I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'll kind of leave it down to a 50-50 that only you are going to be able to answer. <laughs> what is one of your favorite movies based on a true story? Lion. Yes. <laughs> good job. Oh, good choice. Now I know you know this story very well. Mm-hmm. And you could probably do a better report off the cuff right now than I could. Uh, having researched it all. How many times have you, you seen the movie? I've seen it twice. Okay. And then a third time, my first time that you showed me. You showed me the first 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, yeah. And then skipped a whole bunch and then the very ending. Yeah, we were in a crunch. A time crunch, <laughs> yeah. And I will say, I'll talk more about the true story rather than the movie itself. I will talk about the movie. So, let's get into it, eh? Eh. Lion. A 2016 film based on... This true story it is about a little boy named Saru in Khandwa Ganeshthala, India. He was born in 1986. His mother was a Hindu of the Rajput caste and his father was a Muslim. His parents' interfaith marriage was unusual for the time. His father abandoned the family after taking a second wife, throwing the family into poverty when Saru was just three years old. His mother worked in construction to support herself and her children but often did not make enough money to feed them all and could not afford this to send them to school. Saru and his elder brothers, Gudu and Kalu, began begging at the local railway station and market for food and money, and Saru was sent by his mother with a bowl to ask neighbors for leftovers. At one point, Gudu was arrested for violating child labor laws after selling toothbrush and paste kits at the railway station platform, and despite the law being intended to protect children, was imprisoned for a few days. Not good do. Good do. So that's the setup, right? They are unfathomably poor. Yeah. I'll also now reveal my primary source for a lot of my report was uh, Saru's book, A Long Way Home, which may give away a thing or two about what is coming next. <laughs> yeah, I already have learned things about the true story that I didn't know. Yeah, it's harrowing. I remember you showed me just the first hour or so, and I was like, wow, this is just needlessly sad. Hammering you over the head with just, hey, have you thought of something sad? Well, you're not going to be able to think about something happy ever again. <laughs> yeah. I think harrowing is a good word. And it's funny, too, because I would say you're not a very needlessly sad person. Absolutely not. I, can't. I mean, other than marrying me, you quite you'd like to be happy. <laughs> well, I really struggle watching sad things. But I'm really passionate about what the movie portrays, if that yes. makes sense. So. Alright, we're getting into it. A little while later, when Saru was five, Gadu said he was going to ride the train from Kandwa to the city of Burhanpur, uh, 70 kilometers or 43 miles to the south. Saru asked to accompany him, to which Gadu reluctantly agreed. By the time the train reached Burhanpur, Saru was so tired he collapsed onto his seat on the platform. Gadu told his little brother to wait and promised to be back shortly. Gadu did not return, and Saru eventually became impatient. He noticed a train parked in the station and, thinking his brother was on it, boarded an empty carriage. He found there were no doors to the adjoining carriages. Hoping his brother would come for him, he fell asleep. 
When he awoke, the train was traveling across an unfamiliar area. Occasionally, the train stopped at small stations, but Suru was unable to open the door to escape. Suru's rail journey eventually ended at the huge Howra railway station in Calcutta, and he fled when someone opened the door to his carriage. Saru did not know it at the time, but he was nearly 1,500 kilometers, or 930 miles, from his hometown. How many days was it again? He is not sure. Eventually, he goes back and, like, calculates it, but at the time, he does not know. Okay. Just to emphasize, like, he does not have food, he does not have water, he does not have a way to go to the bathroom. So there he is. He's in Calcutta. He, uh, he attempted to return home a few times by boarding different trains. But they proved to be suburban trains, and each one eventually took him right back to the Halra railway station. For a week or two, he lived on and around the station, surviving by scavenging scraps of food in the street and sleeping underneath the station's seats. To make matters even worse, Saru spoke Hindi in a part of the country that primarily spoke Bengali. Eventually, he ventured out into the city, and after days of homelessness on the streets, he was found by a railway worker who took him in and gave him food and shelter. But Saru fled when the railway worker showed Saru to a friend, and Saru sensed that something was not right. The two men chased after him, but he managed to escape. So if you're at home thinking, wow, this is horrible, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> and I think the movie does a, like, a good job at simultaneously like showing you how awful of a situation this is. And showing you how cool Saru is. Mm-hmm. There's one point in this movie, it's not referenced in the book, but it, it is a great scene. Yeah. It's a great scene, even if it's not true, to show like kind of his living situation where he is like sleeping in a tunnel with a bunch of other homeless kids. And like the only nice thing that happens like pretty much in the entire movie up until this point is a kid gives him a single sheet of cardboard to lay on so that he's lying on cardboard instead of concrete. Not great. And then, you know, he wakes up and all those kids are being stolen away and he runs away. So even that is fleeting and it's not great. (laughs) On the streets of Calcutta, Saru eventually met a teenager who took him to a police station and reported that he might be a lost child. (laughs) The police took Saru to a government center for abandoned children. Weeks later... He was moved to the Indian Society for Sponsorship and Adoption. The staff there attempted to locate his family, but Saru did not know enough for them to sufficiently trace his hometown, and he was officially declared a lost child. Yeah, there's a scene in the movie, and again, I don't know how true it is, but they ask, like, oh, what's your mom's name? Mama. Like, he he doesn't... Yeah, I picture my niece in a city she has no idea anything about. Not doing well. In a language she doesn't speak. In a language... Yeah, that is... I mean, there are some people that can communicate with him in Hindi, but for the most part, yeah. Rough. In this little agency, he is eventually found by the Briarleys. They adopt him, and he moves to Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. Pretty cool. And this is the part of the movie, let's say like the second half or the next hour, that you just like skipped to the end. Having seen it, I think, twice now since, it's a very good part. Yeah. And it's such a relief. Like, it's just an hour of like, hey, things are okay sometimes. This next section comes from BBC News. Saru settled down well in his new home. During this time, he learned English and in turn lost his Hindi. But as he got older, the desire to find his birth family 
became increasingly strong. The problem was, as an illiterate five-year-old, he had not known the name of the town he had come from. All he had to go on were his vivid memories. If only there was a way to scour the globe and search for his lost family. Enter. Google Earth. Yeah. He said, quote, It was like being Superman. You are able to go over and take a photo mentally and ask, Does this match? When you say no, keep on going and going and going. It has been 25 years. Wow. Since he was a lost child, a five-year-old. And he uses this Google Earth for three years, looking around in India, for a total of 9,855 hours. Wow. Like a fine-tooth comb over India. He would painstakingly follow railway lines radiating from the Howrah Railway Station, um, relying on his vague memories of the main features around the Burhanpur Railway Station. Eventually, Saru hit on a more effective strategy. Quote, I multiplied the time I was on the train, about 14 hours, with the speed of Indian trains, and I came up with a rough distance of about 1,200 kilometers. He drew a circle on a map with its center in Calcutta, with its radius about the distance he thought he had traveled. Incredibly, he soon discovered what he was looking for, Kandwa. When I found it, I zoomed down and bang, it just came up. I navigated it all the way from the waterfall where I used to play, end quote. So, again, about an hour of the movie spent in Australia while he's searching for his family. So, right before we get to the climax of this amazing journey, let's talk about that movie. It was Garth Davis's first feature directorial debut. Oh, wow. Again, came out in 2016. The older Saru is played by Dev Patel, the younger by Sonny Pawar. An amazing actor. I agreed, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Probably the best child acting I've seen. I would agree. Yeah. He, he's born for this role, for yeah, sure. absolutely amazing. David Wynnum and Nicole Kidman are the Briarleys, his adoptive parents. And there's uh, many, many other actors, but those are, I would say, the four key, the four pillars. Yeah. So, why is it one of your favorites, Brooke? Well, uh, I kind of mentioned it before, sorry. <laughs> but, like, I just feel really passionate about the overlying, like, purpose at the end of the closing credits, it just talks about the dire situation that India is in, or like that area of the world. Yeah. yeah, and just, I don't know, like I went to go see that movie with my friend when I was visiting her in Kentucky, and at that point... Was this in theaters? Or mm-hmm, yeah, I saw it in okay. theaters, yeah. And at that point, I was just starting college, kind of. <laughs> And, or I knew I had to change my major because I just changed colleges. And I had picked something random, and then I watched that movie, and I was like, that's not anything I'm passionate about. Like, I need to pick something that I'm passionate about, and that can, like, help. The world. Yeah. Which, my end career goal is not exactly helping that exact situation, but, like... But, although, yeah, it is helping. Anyway, so, it's a very harrowing story. I th- it is filmed beautifully... It the is. music is amazing. The it acting is. is phenomenal. Like just it is. every every part of that movie is ten out of ten. Yeah, and I think a big reason for that is because of the subject material. You wouldn't want to not do your best while working on that movie. Absolutely, yeah. Before we move on, what's your pitch? If you had to say, get my dad to see it, <laughs> what would be your well, your probably, quick he's pitch? He's not gonna watch it because he'd be like, oh, I know what happens. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe um, I'll put it in at the beginning. Skip ahead, skip. Yeah. I would probably say, like, it's 
based on a true story about a little boy. You lost him. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. A little boy who just, like, overcomes absolutely insane odds to find the family he was, like, separated from mm-hmm. as a young child. Okay, well, let's get to it. Skipping ahead a little bit, Saru is now in Kandwa. He gets a flight, he gets a train, he, he gets there. He's in India. He retraces his steps where his brothers and he used to play. In the movie, the music is building, he's getting closer and closer. He rounds a corner right to his house that's right in front of him, and it's abandoned. I think there's goats in it. Yeah, in the movie, there's goats in it, yeah. He spends some time poking around, asking for help, and finally, a man who speaks English says, I'll take you to your mother. He shows a picture of him as a child. It's like his missing... The picture they showed. Like on a milk carton if it were in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll let Saru take over from here. He says, quote, I just felt numb and thought, am I hearing what I think I am hearing? Saru was taken to meet his mother who was nearby. At first he did not recognize her, but the facial structure was still there and I recognized her and I said, yes, you are my mother. She grabbed my hand and took me to her house. She could not say anything to me. I think she was as numb as I was. She had a bit of trouble grasping that her son after 25 years had just reappeared like a ghost. Although she had long feared he was dead, a fortune teller had told Saru's mother that one day she would see her son again. I think the fortune teller gave her a bit of energy to live on and to wait for that day to come. Mm-hmm. So, part of the story that we don't get to hear until now, his mother, Kamla Munshi, searched for her two sons in the years that Saru was missing. After they had been gone, um, a month or so after that, Saru's brother was found in two pieces on a oh. railway track. His mother would never know whether foul play was involved or whether the boy had simply slipped and fallen under a train. That happened the night they arrived at the train station and is the reason why Saru went looking for him on that train and the reason that he got lost and all of this happened. Yeah. And you don't know that until that moment. Like, you don't know that Gudu never made it home yeah either it could have been moments after they arrived it could have been hours but very sad Kamla after hearing this news then confined her energy to looking for Saru she would travel to different places on trains never giving up hope that Saru was still alive and would return someday years later she opted to stay in Ganesh Tale rather than moving in with Kalu's family in Burhampur so that Saru would be able to find her if he returned And to wrap up, Saru continues to live in Hobart, Australia. He and his Indian family are are now able to communicate regularly, taking advantage of a computer at the home of one of Kalu's neighbors. He bought his mother a house, so she no longer has to work. And he sold his story rights to a movie company, and it is doing well. And he also has a book, Saru Briarly's A Long Way Home. He's doing well. Good. He deserves it. Now to end my report the same way the movie ends, Saru is what he calls himself, but his original birth name, which was too hard for a five-year-old Saru to pronounce, is Sheru, which means... Lion. Yeah. It is a fantastic movie. Yeah. And much better when you see the whole thing through. Yeah, and I don't just show you the absolute worst parts. (laughs) Yep. And then just some rando guy <laughs> finding his mom. <laughs> yeah. Cannot recommend enough. Skip. Go watch it. Oh. Skip is going to watch it. <laughs> I've watched many movies that I was reluctant about because of like what? Skip. Sixth Sense. You love it. I don't love it. It's fine. You love it. But 
I didn't want to watch it at all. <laughs> yeah, so, that anyway. was good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. To wrap up the episode, we're going to roll a die to find out what our topic is for next week. Science and nature. And again, you have to do some kind of science or nature thing that I'm interested in, and I have to do a science or nature thing that you're interested in, like aphids. I was going to say, don't do plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, you can Well, if you liked this episode or our podcast, remember to subscribe and tell a friend. Yeah. And if you have anything you want to say to us, like a recommendation for our next episode or something, you can email us at trivialconpod, C-O-N-P-O-D, at gmail.com. Have a good week.